we all struggle with humility. That's our theme for this week, and we're going to be asking your family to look at uh, this word throughout the week. We're going to ask you as a couple, uh, you as a parent, just be talking and working with your children and your family about this whole idea of humility. If you think this is not a problem, just take a look at the media. Are you with me? I mean, what we just sang about and what we prayed and what we were experiencing there was the reducing of who we are and the raising up of who God is. But in normal society, Monday to Saturday, you know what happens? It's the raising up of people. I mean, Terrell Owens doesn't get the kind of passes he wants, so he complains to the media and he becomes a center of attention. It's not really about his team, it's about him. You can go to Hollywood and you can... I mean, you can pick any arena. I like sports. I tend to look at that and draw a lot of lessons. But you know what? You can pick any arena. And our world is consumed with the raising up of themselves. What I worry is that sometimes that's going to creep into our church. We'll have just a Christian version of superstar celebrities. Just a a church version of like... uh, you know, uh, celebrities and the Emmys and the Grammys. And, and, and we're, no, we're not careful. We'll suddenly be going to take the platform. And really, we should remember, it's not about us. Amen? That's why sometimes this video really strikes home. I want you to watch for a minute a humorous attempt at, at showing perhaps what is too common in our churches and Christian circles, how we are actually... Becoming more like the world than we want to realize. Watch this clip and see if uh, it'll make you laugh while it stabs you. It's all about me. It is all about you. Now the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about how I lift my name on high. All 20 songs, all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends, if you have any. Everyone can join in the worship with you, for you, and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you. There is none like me. All this for only $19.95. Operators are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing, and I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. Call 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at me-myself-and-I.com. Call today because no one can praise you like you. We hope that's only humorous, right? But we live in a society where, where we and us, me, my, mine, and I, uh, likes to take center stage. And that whole attitude is really drawn out in our text this morning in Luke chapter 18. Well, you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18, and let's begin in verse 9. At this, uh, and let's look at this story about two people, one who epitomizes humility, spiritual desperation, and the other, which is a, um, a, an illustration, a picture of pride and the, 
the opposite of humility. And Christ shares this story to get us to think about uh, humility and and what it really means in our life. He opens it up in verse 9 with an interesting um, uh, commentary. Look what he says in Luke 18, 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. I mean, wow, is that not a, a commentary on our churches today? And many citizens in America who are trying their best to do what? To be good. I mean, in fact, this is a common myth out there today that if you can be good enough, you can get to heaven. So don't think this parable is kind of like out in left field. This speaks to who we are today. We're surrounded by people who are doing their best to be confident in their own righteousness. But Isaiah the prophet said, what about our righteousness? It is like what? Filthy rags. And never underestimate the power of that phrase. I believe it's Isaiah 53, 56. I'm not sure exactly. But those rags mentioned there? We're referencing leper rags, what you would use to clean up a leper. And you just wouldn't go carrying those around. You wouldn't wear it as a, as a headband. You're not, those are not rags anyone wants. And those rags represent the best you can do. Kind of puts our righteousness in a whole other perspective, doesn't it? So Christ tells the story to help us see that really there, we can't be confident in our own righteousness. So he told this parable, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, you ought to circle the word Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. You ought to circle the word tax collector. Now, with that in mind on your teaching tool, I want to encourage you this morning to draw a line down the middle of your teaching tool on one side and on one side, write Pharisee. We're going to examine him in a little bit. On the other side, write tax collector. I have several things I want you to write down. Some good note-taking opportunities for you to learn the scriptures and you'll use them in your own small group later. But I want to study these two people and I want you to see some things about them. So just kind of get your teaching tool ready with a line down the middle and Pharisee on one side and tax collector on the other. And no faces, please, while you do that. Thank you very much. Don't draw on doodling your faces of people you know. Not a good idea. Verse 11. Here's what he says about the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? He prayed not for himself, but about himself. Such presumption. Here's what he said. God, and by the way, that's the only time he uses God's name. The very first word. And from then on, he moves on to himself, doesn't he? I thank you. And can't you just kind of picture this in your mind? I thank you that I am not like other men. You know, just a, just a side note here. Whenever you start your prayers off with comparison, you're headed down the wrong road. Are you with me? I mean, he doesn't start off with how, God's, how great God is, but he starts off with other people. Just a bad idea to start praying when you start comparing. So, so notice comparison, comparison kills. It really does. And it starts killing his prayer life here. I thank you I'm not like other men. He mentions them robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Maybe you can see him looking down his nose, pointing a finger. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, let's just stop there for a minute and examine what he said for, for just a moment. Fasting wasn't called for twice a week, so he went above and beyond what was expected. And actually, according to the law, you weren't required to give a tenth of everything, only of certain items. But from what most scholars believe about this text, he would give a tenth of his herbs. He would give a tenth of 
I mean, anything he had, he would make sure he gave a portion of it. Not so he could give and God could could use that for expanding his kingdom, but so that he could feel good about what he had done. Everything he did was not for man for for God's glory, but was for his own glory. He was trying to make sure he was good enough. Interesting, isn't it? I like the way uh, his posture reveals some things. Let's just take some notes here, would you? Notice his physical posture. It says that he stood up in verse 11. Now, the words here indicate a couple of things. First of all, more than like standing, but probably more like a hand raising, more like a puffed up chest. This guy stood for one reason. He wanted to be what? Seen. Now, this is very common with the Pharisees. What did Matthew 5, 6, and 7 say about the Pharisees? That they often prayed in public to what? To be seen of men. And they would wear long flowing robes and... They had Old Testament scriptures tied to their sleeves and they had uh, all the bells and whistles. And so when they stood, it was more than just a, a visual sight, which you could see the robes and the hats, but it was also probably in a lot of ways an audible sight. You could hear them standing. Everything about this guy's prayer was so that he could be seen. His physical posture is packed with pride. I want to make some, some application in a moment. Let's just notice about this guy first. Then notice his verbal words. They're riddled with arrogance. Even in a, in a lot of ways, superiority. It's not just enough to, you know, he's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about himself and putting others down at the same time. So from his physical posture to his verbal words, this man is packed with pride. That's the Pharisee. Now, Perhaps you're wondering, who does this Pharisee represent? I want to be very textual here with you and help you understand the context. Listen very carefully. In Luke, Christ has spent several chapters appealing to the Jewish nation, right? Believe. Repent. Trust me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am the Messiah. So these messages were ringing out, but they kept saying what? We don't need you. We don't believe you. Instead, we're going to put our trust, we're going to put our confidence in, in the law, in what we can do. And I believe, knowing the background of these last few chapters and Christ's appeal to his own nation, I believe this Pharisee represents that Jewish nation, which, in the face of, of clear evidence about Christ the Messiah, they responded proudly and said, we don't need you. We're fine just like we are. They were very smug. They were very proud. And you know what? Solomon said in Proverbs that uh, pride goes before what? Destruction. What happened right after the, to the Jewish nation not long after this? They were, experienced partial blindness as a nation. The kingdom was then opened up to us, all the quote-unquote tax collectors, what other words have we used in the past for ourselves? The Gentiles who were brought in. Those wild branches. We were the birds in the tree. We were the, 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 the lost son. You see, all through the chapters preceding this, Christ is showing. You know what? Pride is the very last thing before destruction. And if you this morning are smug, very complacent in how good you are, puffed up with just how wonderful You've done this whole Christian thing. 
You know, that whole attitude often is the very last step before a fall. I would just want to encourage you and engage you mentally to be very careful about feelings of self-confidence that run contrary to the work that God wants to do in our life. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. Sure enough, just after pride, Israel fell. But notice the next person. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood, and look what it says him. He stood, yes, but he stood at a distance. Now, these guys were praying at the temple. So we're trying to figure out, what does at a distance mean? And this one Pharisee seemed to stand up in the middle of the crowd. What he's saying is, he was not willing to go near the place of prayer. He didn't want to approach a place and feel like he was worthy. He was sending a signal, I'm not worthy. Isn't that an awesome way to start your prayers? Instead of comparing to others and saying, hey, look how much better I am than him or her. This guy said, I'm not even worthy. So he stood at a distance and the Bible says that he said one simple prayer. Verse 13. He would not even look up to heaven. Indicating that the Pharisee not only stood up, but he probably looked up. He probably held his hands up and he was just, you know, one of these really into himself and his posture. But the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven. But instead, he beat his breast. And that's a present tense phrase there. So probably a continuous action. And, you know, maybe you picture a Tarzan-like motion. I don't know if it's this, oh, so much, as more like this. You just kind of like, you know, has he ever done something? And you're just like, oh, rats. And you just kind of, you know, you just hate it. And and I can see him kind of in himself going, God, be merciful. And he's almost like pounding his chest with one hand. Because he feels the intensity and the weight of his humility of his spiritual desperation, of his bankruptcy. Almost this sense, and when you really mess up in life, and you sometimes say to yourself, why did I do that? And you, you kind of clench your fist, and you, you kind of beat yourself up, so to speak. That's kind of the, the emotion behind this phrase, beat his chest. So notice his posture. He was um, very humble. In fact, in a lot of ways, he, he probably... Had a lot of self-loathing going on. And then he made this one phrase. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Isn't that a great prayer? Now, I want to explain something to you that you won't quite see in the word have mercy. There's a definite article in front of the word mercy. In the, in the original text, it could easily read this way. Lord, have the mercy on me. And when we are in, in situations where, where we need God's exaltation, you know what you don't need? You don't need someone else's mercy. Amen? Now, let me talk to all the spouses here. Listen, and especially the women. God's Spirit just leading me to say this, and this wasn't in my notes, but I want to feel very confident about this in the spiritual sense of the word. Listen very carefully. When your husband is being worked over by God, don't you dare rescue him with your mercy. Women, are you listening? And I rarely kind of go into these paths. I don't try to get too personal sometimes. But I know that for men, the only thing that will change a man are the walls closing in. The walls of consequences. Men are good at, at verbally manipulating things. And they'll give you line after line. And if you believe them and think they're telling you the truth, they'll just go back to their old ways every time. The only thing that changes a man is the hand of God breaking down his pride. And wives, women... When you see that happening and your heart begins to melt for your knight in shining armor who's kind of rusty, (laughs) 
Don't you dare rescue him. Let the Lord break his pride. Otherwise, you'll be rescuing him again in about six months. And you'll be picking up the pieces again in about a year. What men need is the, the mercy of God in their life. That's the only thing that can change a man deep down. Now, I would say that to women as well. I don't know a lot about women. So I mean, I'm just telling you, I don't know how men should, I mean, I don't know about that. Deal. I'm just telling you, when God starts to change a man, he did this in my life. And I remember talking to Julie about some real character deficiencies. And asking her, you know, I need you to help me with this. And, and she was very wise in just saying, you know what, I think uh, I'll answer your questions. But she let me and God deal with that. And she didn't bail me out and say things like, well, honey, you didn't mean to. Or it's okay. Or I know it's just an accident. She let God deal with me. And her silence at the right time was just exactly what I needed to, to prod me to making sure that God was dealing and changing my character. Not just my outside behavior so she wouldn't be upset with me or we wouldn't be getting along with the kids. You know what I'm saying? Guys, that's, a, that's interesting. God, have your mercy on me. So I say that in the sense not only about our, our changes in action when God humbles us, but also about our souls. No one's mercy can save your soul from hell other than God's mercy. There's a, there's a reference here in the words that are used to the same phrase that Paul says when he says that Christ is the, I'm using a big word here, he's the propitiation for our sins. You remember that verse in the New Testament? This is more of our Bible study core crowd here, so I can kind of go down this road here. This is much of the same words here used when he said, have your mercy on me. What he's saying is, God, have your satisfaction on me. In other words, whatever it takes to meet your satisfaction, that's what I need. That's the only thing that will work for sinners. Because that's what he called himself, wasn't it? God, have your mercy, only your satisfying mercy on me, this sinner. You know what I love about that prayer? That prayer has nothing to do with himself. In fact, that prayer actually says, man, you're in a, you're in a low place. I mean, you can't do diddly squat about your life. You call yourself a sinner. You cry out for only one person's mercy. You don't even go into anything else. You're beating your chest. I mean, man, do you have any hope? And the answer to that is what? No, I don't. That is the place of spiritual brokenness that we all need to come to. That's the kind of humility God responds to. And as long, listen very carefully, as long as there are ounces of pride and self-righteousness within us, God sees those things as the seeds of pride. And I think it's very timely that we're teaching this to our church. Because you know what? That's where we're, we should be most concerned about pride. I don't really worry about pride out there. That's what I expect. I expect unbelieving people and a world led by the father of lies to seek to be proud. Are you with me? That was his sin back in the, when he was in heaven. And, and Isaiah lays that out for us. That was his number one problem. In fact... Pride is listed as the number one sin that God hates. Did you know that? Seven things God hates. They're an abomination to Him. First is pride. So I don't, really, I don't worry so much that I see it in the sports world, Hollywood. I expect that from a world led by the father of pride. What I worry about is that Christians who should be falling on their faces and crying out for mercy from God, who alone can save us and sanctify us, is that we are too quickly smug in our own righteousness. We're so, so quick to run to how well we've done things and how good we are. So I challenge you this morning. 
to open up your chest cavity and dig around for shadows of pride. It's not easy to find. Especially, and I'll say this kindly, to people like you. I mean, let's just be honest. You guys are the core of our church. You come at 8.30. Some of you come at 8.30. Some come at 8.40. But, you know, in in that general time frame. No offense. Just laugh a little bit. I I mean, you're here because probably you're working at 10.30. A lot of you work on a Wednesday night ministry. I got a letter from someone new in our church this week who's asking if he could have about 15 things they want to do. And I'm like, man... Wow, this family's just diving. They're not just diving in. They're plunging in, you know. And, I mean, you guys are the core of our church. You make First Family what it is. And so do you. You know what you're, you're set up for? You're set up for feeling really good about yourself. Now, I realize at some point that's probably not a bad thing. I don't know how to balance all this. But I do know this. That at a certain point, you can also become very proud in what you've accomplished and what you've done. I had someone say to me this week, they were expressing their appreciation to me and our family during Pastor Appreciation Month, week, day, whatever. And, I, you know, I understand the point of that, it's, and I, I really appreciate it. That's just an awkward place for me to be sometimes. And Because, um, you know, I just told them, I said, you know, really the privilege is all mine. I just love being your, guys, your pastor. It's a privilege for me. I'm not perfect. I'm sure I've made you mad at times. I've probably messed up. But, you know, the point is, I, I, it's an honor for me to be your pastor. And, you know, thanking me, I'm like... You know, sometimes we have to be careful how much of the appreciation that we accept because it's really not about us. It's really not about me. It's not about you. We are, we are collectively committing ourselves to a journey of setting up a church that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And the more we can get ourselves out of the picture and the more we can focus the picture and on the greatness and glory of God the better our church will be. I think we've made a great turn in this and in a lot of the lyrics that we've been singing about since about May, June. You notice that a lot of our songs not only are in line with our theme each week, and Josh as our interim has done a great job, but we've really worked very hard at trying to be lyrically deeper in, in their content. I mean, this morning, just think about what you're singing and the character and greatness of God because sometimes we need to focus on His greatness. Not sometimes. That should be our focus. And when we gather, that's one of the best ways to drop your baggage. We carry luggage in and we're like, man, who's going to give me their mercy? You know what? I think, man, bring your baggage and focus on God and let His mercy drop that baggage off. Unload your suitcases for a week. Cast all your cares upon Him. He cares for you. Are you with me? Humility in front of Almighty God is just an awesome... um, it's a character trait and an action that ought to uh, typify believing Christians. Who does this tax collector represent? Well, I mentioned to you briefly. I think he represents all those who, who really weren't on the inside to begin with. And you've got to understand, this would be like, uh, in our culture, it would be like Billy Graham going somewhere to pray. You know, and then maybe like uh, Marilyn Manson. And when both of them leave, God says to Marilyn Manson, I mean, if they were to be like the story, that's the kind of prayer I like. I mean, the tax collectors were looked down upon. They were hated by the Jews because if they could keep whatever above and beyond they extorted uh, the normal man. If, they, if you owe 20 bucks and they can get 60, they got to keep that, that uh, what did I say, 20 or 40. They got to keep the extra. I'll say it like that. Math always messes me up. I'm telling you, I get more trouble with numbers. And I, you know, so if they could extort you and if they knew secrets about you, they could leverage all the information to get more money from you. So tax collectors were not 
uh, well-liked people. Remember Zacchaeus? We're going to come to this story in a little bit. And he promised to give back four times what he had stolen. I mean, they were not liked people. It'd be like, I thought about titling the sermon, the pornographer and the pastor. It'd be like going to church and the pastor's going to pray and then you've got a pornographer get up who's known for his, his vile and his, and his uh, evil and both praying and the pastor being proud and pharisaical and the pornographer being humble and repentant and God accepting pornographer. We just don't think in those terms. We think, wait, you've done wrong. You're not the right kind of person. How could God hear you? I'll tell you why. Because when God extends His mercy, He does it through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And humility... Humility opens the door, not to what we've done, our righteousness, but it opens the door to Christ's righteousness. That's what everybody needs. That's what you and I need. So this tax collector represents all those people who weren't of the Jewish nation. So let me review for you briefly. And I'm not sure I'll get all this straight by memory, but just kind of welcome you through the last three, three, uh, several chapters. We were called wild branches. We were... Uh, uh, called dogs at one point. We were called um, birds that come in the tree and make a nest. We were called lost sons, and now we're called tax collectors. But do you see the point Christ is saying? And is this not what those who are not part of the nation did? I mean, Christ's ministry for those three years was built on people, the average common person. Yes, some Jews, but a lot of just Jews and other folks just hearing him and saying, Hey, he said he's the Messiah. I believe him. I repent and believe. And then they were getting baptized. Just things were happening. But all those folks who were proud were saying, no, this can't be true. We don't believe. It's so typical of people's responses. And so this story teaches us something really clearly. That humility is really the very first step. It's the beginning step in finding true spiritual success. In fact, would you write that simple phrase down? As you look at these two characters, as you simply understand this text, write down this simple principle. Responding humbly to the call of God is the beginning of true success. This is borne out in in one arena I want to share with you. And I I don't want to be careful here because I'm not against education at all. I'm for seminary. Everybody understand what I'm saying? I am for seminary. Okay, I want to make sure I'm on the record. CD's rolling. I am for seminary. Okay? But let me just be clear with you on one thing. When you look at this phrase, and you look at how people kind of get approved for ministry in the Church of America, it's rarely about this and more about your degrees. We tend to think, hey, well, he went to school or she went to college and they got their degree, they got theological training, so they must be ready. And we never ask a really, really about the most important thing. When God calls your name, did you humbly respond and say, Lord, I'll obey whatever you say? I mean, that's really the heart we're after. So what if you got everything up here and can answer all the questions and know the right answers? If you can't say yes when God calls your name, who cares what you know? Amen? When I got ordained. The most, uh, apart from my marriage, but the most moving experience. Now, you know I'm a closet charismatic. You know that already about me. And I'll tell you something. Uh, and some of you are stunned by that, aren't you? You're like, we didn't know that. Just relax and laugh a little bit. Come on, lighten up, right? But at that ordination service, man, I tell you, it's the closest thing this non non kind of guy ever been to, to a charismatic service. I mean, the Holy Spirit was just, it was like four hours long. And I'm long-winded, so that fit me pretty good. 
And man, just hundreds of men were coming by, laying their hands on my head. And I cried probably two to three hours straight. I just wept. I had to wear suits, you know, when I was in training. And, and uh, so I had this suit on me. I was choking. I was trying to loosen that tie. But I, I just was so overwhelmed that God would call me to ministry. I was, it was, it's, it's just very hard to explain. I mean, I can't even uh, explain it right now. But all I know is that I had a four-hour grilling that afternoon. Then I had a four-hour ordination service. And by the end of that night, I was so overwhelmed with the call of God on my life. And these men uh, standing behind me, laying hands on me and saying, we, we feel like God has put his hand on you and we want to launch you in the ministry. I was like 24. I didn't know diddly. I mean, I spelled my name half the time. But I knew, I knew God's hand was, was calling me for one ministry, one job. Now listen very carefully. It was in that day experience that in my four-hour grilling about the doctrines and what I believed, I was facing about 70 doctors, theological doctors and folks with their degrees, and they quizzed me and they grilled me. And some of it was very pretentious because they asked you questions that you know no one's ever else going to ask, and who even cares, right? But that's okay. I mean, and they're like 50 and 60 and 70. These are great godly men. But no one, and I say this with respect, no one asked me about anything dealing with the statement on the screen a minute ago. No one. Let me be clear about this. Nobody, this is not a hyperbole, not one single theologian in that room asked me this question. Tell me if you read your Bible, Todd. Four hours of, of bantering, hard texts, difficult passages, doctrines and beliefs. I mean, they're going to kind of put their stamp on me and say, we say this guy can do it. We say we're behind him. He believes the right stuff. But no one said to me, Hey, Todd, did you pray this morning? No one, not one single person in that room asked me, Do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart? Now, I'm going to tell you something. I love going to school, and I, and I hope, I really do, but there's something wrong with that picture. And I've told this to them. When I speak down there every year, I usually have a way to get the story in. You know why? Because there's something wrong. If you can send men and women to ministry with all the right answers, but the wrong heart, there's something wrong. You see, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing that, that the church has got to be worth. That's what this story's talking about. Having everything right on the outside and nothing right on the inside. Give me a thousand people with the right heart and we can teach them in time how to do the right thing on the outside. But please, don't give me a thousand professionals who can't get along. Amen? Humbly responding to the call of God is the beginning of true success. Now, I want to take a moment and ask you two questions in light of that. In light of laying the textual groundwork for you and seeing what this story relates, I want to ask you two questions. And, and don't lose me on the first one. Because while I know that, that you here are primarily the core of our church, at 1030 it will be almost flipped around backwards. There will be lots of guests here. There will be new people. There will be a lot of just uh, seekers. And there will be young people who are just checking out church. So this first question applies to really our justification. So I want to ask you a question. In light of this principle and responding to God, I want you to answer this question in your heart. Quietly. Here's the first question. 
Have I responded humbly to God's initial call to justification? Have you? So that's a big way to, of wording what, Todd? I just want to ask you one simple question. Are you born again? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your only way to heaven? Have you? Now, there's people in this room right now who in the last few months have become a Christian. In the last 12 months have been saved. So I never want to assume falsely that we're okay because I have been at church for 23 years. Or Todd, my parents were Christian. Well, great for your parents, but I'm not talking to them this morning. I'm talking to you. But Todd, I was, you know, I went to school and I'm in Sunday school for years. All these reasons that, uh, that really go back to the first part of the verse 9. You're confident in your own righteousness. What I'm asking is this. When God called you to believe by faith that His Son was the only way to heaven, did you say, Lord, I believe, have mercy on me? In fact, I'll be a little more specific. When in your life, I'm talking about general seasons. When in your life did you do that? Were you a young child? Were you just a, a, were you a husband? Were you a father? When in your life did you respond to God's initial call for Him to, to justify you, make you right with God? Now, as you're thinking that, I want to ask you a question. If you can't, and, and bear with me here, if you just don't know when that happened at all, I think this week it would be very wise you talk to someone. I'm not saying you're not a Christian at all. But I will tell you this. Yeah, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to believe that someone can meet Christ and not remember, at least generally, when it happened. Is that okay to say? I mean, a life-changing encounter with the Son of God, who alone can save us, and we're just not quite sure when that happened. I don't know, maybe when I was born, maybe when I went to kindergarten, maybe it's when I got married. I mean... Wait, 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 wait. We're talking about Christ coming from heaven and changing us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and we're kind of clueless about when. I'm not a you know date kind of guy. You got to know the date and the time. I'm not that kind of guy. But I do believe you'll know during your time in your life when that happened. And if you don't, I would suggest that you call our office this week, talk to your lighthouse leader, say, "Listen, I think I'm saved. I think I mean I want to be saved. I don't have a clue when or can we talk about that and engage someone in that conversation." Your soul is worth it. Amen? Now, the minute I'm saying this, if there's anyone here that's thinking, that's what i got to do, I'm going to tell you what's happening right now in your heart. You're thinking, but I can't do that because I'm... And you're going to put your name in there. I can't do that because I lead this ministry. You're going to start leading all the reasons that your self-righteousness is going to keep you from addressing your deepest spiritual need. Don't make that mistake. Amen? It doesn't matter who you are or what ministry you lead, or how long you've been here, if that's even possible in a two-year-old church. I mean, none of those things matter! I was 14 years old. I was like Mr. Youth Group, for junior hires at least. I mean, you know, and, and my parents were, were big in the church. I mean, everything I'd explained was happening to me. I'm sitting there thinking, man, I'm going to go to hell when I die. I don't know God. All I know is a good church and a good youth group, and I love having fun. That's awesome. But I don't know God. But I'm thinking, but if I go forward... But if I tell this to somebody, if, 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 my parents and my... None of that matters, amen? Because your soul is at stake. So if there's anybody here, you're just not sure if that's, if that's really happened. If you have cried out for the one only mercy to save you. If you have thrown yourself on, 
on God's mercy, then please, today, trust Christ or talk to someone and let's get to the core of the issue. Amen? That's really what matters most. Because when all is said and done, and you stand before the Lord, guess what He won't ask you? He won't say, Joni, now how many times did you sing in front of the church? He won't even care. No offense. <laughs> he won't say, Vince, now how many folks were in your lighthouse? He won't even care. Heath, uh, now how many houses did you sell? He won't even care. What he's going to ask you is, okay, do you know my son, Jesus Christ? And if you believed in him is the only way. That's the exclusive answer. The only question that matters. Are you with me? So I don't want you to write this off so quickly. Are you confident that when God called your name and said, repent and believe that you said yes? Or did you run to your own self-righteousness? Second question. Are you responding to God's call, His progressive call, to sanctification? There's an interesting verse in Romans 8.29. In fact, could I have you turn there as we, as we wrap things up here? Turn to Romans 8.29. And let me show you what I think God is doing in our lives on a regular basis and how humbly responding to this is, is very important to your growth. Look at Romans 8.29. There's a simple phrase tucked away in several verses that, that talks about what God is doing in our life. And I want you to notice just the phrase in verse 29 first, okay? It says that He has predestined us. See the middle of verse 29? He has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. You see that phrase? That is what God is doing in our lives. God is moving us to the likeness of His Son. Now watch this very carefully. That will culminate... When his son comes back. That's not something that can happen on earth. I want to be clear about that. You're not going to become a god on earth. Okay, that's false new age philosophy. It's wrong doctrine and it's unbiblical. You can't become, you know, centered enough on yourself that you become this, this god-like person. That's not going to happen. But God can begin to remove sin from your life as habits to where, watch this, you're not sinless, but you do sin less. Amen? First John says that those who have the seed of God continue to do righteousness. So, so God is in this process from the time we're saved, responding to justification, to moving us like His Son. And when that happens, that culminates at His return, we'll be just like Him. I believe that is a progressive thing that God is in charge of. Now watch this. I believe our role in that is we affect the pace of that. Did you know that? You can't stop that process and be glad about that. You weren't saved by your grace, and you will not be sanctified by your grace or good deeds. None of that's a part of you. However, we do affect the pace of our sanctification. I really believe that. And you can look in the epistles from Peter that talk about how we're to partner with God and adding things to our life. And watch this, guys. You know how that pace is quick? And you know why some folks can grow quickly? Like, man, what happened to that person? They're like a, a weed, man. They're growing so fast. And some folks are like, man, is there even a seed in there? Come on, you just kind of move the dirt away of their life. You're trying to find what God planted. Here's why. When we respond humbly to God's call upon our life, time after time, you know what that does? That's like water and sunshine on the seed. And, whoosh, whoosh, and that seed grows and sprouts. And the reason some folks aren't growing, let me rephrase that. And Lord, just give us mercy here. The reason a lot of you aren't growing 
is because you've heard God speak to you. And instead of responding humbly, you keep saying, no, God, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. You list your reasons. You call their names. You tell God why. But he never changes his initial question. He just wants to know, will you obey? Will you do what I ask you to do? And until we respond humbly to that, our growth is stunted. In fact, what does James say? James 4, watch this. He says, draw near to God. And what will he do? See, there is this partnership, whether we want to admit it or not. How we can explain it, I don't know. But there's this partnership that when God sees us responding humbly, what does he do? He moves even closer to us. That's what I mean. The pace of our growth, of our progressive sanctification, is greatly affected by your willingness to say, God, anything you say, you're in charge. It's not about me. Why should I think you've got to do things my way? It's all about you. So, God, whatever you say, I'm in. Now, you can still be humble and say yes, even while you're diligent and determined. Did you know that? It's all in how you do it. It's all in your attitude. Let me give you an example. Um, we're having real difficulties, and this will be real transparent with you. We're having real difficulties getting the space we need here at Parkview. Okay? Um, we've gone for a month now through various channels to try to get rooms, and we're just really not getting a lot of cooperation. Um, and we've tried to be very humble about that. We have worked with it, whatever we've gotten, and we've worked with it. Our kids have been in one large gym. Which is really difficult. You thought it was hard on you guys in the gym. We're trying to divide that gym in threes. And we're trying, you know. So we're trying to respond humbly to authorities of our city. We don't want to create adversarial relationships. We've got 350 taxpayers that we would like to know if if we can use certain taxpayer-funded rooms in non-school hours. I think that's a legitimate question, isn't it? Nothing wrong with that. And I really don't mind a no answer. I just would like to know an answer. And if the answer is no, could we ask, could we ask why? Is there a policy somewhere? So this week I had to write one of those letters. One of those letters. The elders and I have been praying and they really encouraged it. Todd, in a humble way, let's just continue to push this and, and, and see what the answer is. So we wrote one of those letters that we just said, guys, I'd like to know why we're being continually denied use of rooms for our children, for different things. Could I have a reason or could I have the rooms? Now, see, that, I want to be humble about that, but I don't want to be a doormat. Are you with me? And I think that's the balance we've all got to find is in saying yes to God's call, how do we remain diligent and determined and yet humble? It's all in the attitude. It's in how we approach people. It's in how we exemplify the character of Christ while we stand tall with a rod of steel in our spine. Amen? I think Christ called it like this. And you might want to write this phrase down. It's in the book of Luke, and the reference slips me. But he said that when he sent the 72 out, he said, I want you to be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. That's a good picture of humility, isn't it? You're kind of fluttering around like a dove, but you've got a stinger in your tail. <laughs> you know? They don't get the wrong picture there, but I'm just saying there's, there's this balance. Humility is not saying, okay, what? It doesn't matter, and I'll just be a doorman. I don't think that's humility at all. But it is the courage to stand for what's right in a way that, that's not lifting yourself up or with wrong motives. Humility is an honest assessment of how God has made you and then using that for His glory. 
Humility. Are you responding yes to God's call in your life? Did you before when you were saved? And Are you now on a regular basis? Question for you. What is God this week asked of you? Don't say it out loud. Think. What has God asked of you? Something about your home and your relationships there, maybe? Is an apology in order? Is there a a step up to make with your fatherly or motherly duties? Maybe it regards something at church or your own personal spiritual growth. What does God ask you? Maybe it involves your finances. What does God ask of you? The best answer is yes, Lord. Humbly responding in obedience to God. That's the beginning of true spiritual success. By the way, in the story in our text, the Bible says that one went home justified back in Luke 18. One went home condemned. You see that? Those are the two destinations of your choices, by the way. To respond to Jesus, yes, from justification forth. I mean, that's, that's the way to exaltation. See what verse 14 says? I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. If you try to exalt yourself, your end destination is God's going to humble you. But if we humble ourselves, and there's that middle tense word there. You're a part of that. Humbling yourself. The Bible says that God will exalt you. I don't know if that means in this life, by the way. But in light of our context and the end times and true exaltation, I think God's saying, when all said and done, I'll be able to take you and say, this person has believed in my son. This person has obeyed and said yes to me. That's the kind of success. That's the kind of spiritual success that we're looking for. That's what God's after. Who's the best example of exaltation? It's in Philippians 2, isn't it? Jesus Christ Himself. He humbled Himself even to death on a cross. And then, what does the Bible say? At the end of time, God will also, say it with me, highly exalt Him. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess and say what? Jesus Christ is Lord. He's our model. Our mandate? Humility. How's that lived out? Yes, Lord, every time. When He speaks, I'm all ears and I'm obeying. Will you pray with me, please?